Welcome to Talking Business Now. I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thank you for joining us. We hear a lot about midlife crises. The term has become so ingrained in our popular culture that it's tossed about casually to describe just about any unhappy or anxious period a middle-aged person experiences. Even people who outwardly seem to have it all don't escape it. So it was for our guest today, August Tarak, a co-founder of MTV and the A&E Network, who seemed to be leading an especially blessed life. But it wasn't until a skydiving accident that led to multiple encounters with the Trappist monks that Tarak truly embraced the redemptive power of leading an authentically purposeful life. In 2004, Track decided to enter the John Templeton Foundation's Power of Purpose essay contest by answering the question, what is the purpose of life? He had 3,500 words in which he could express his thoughts. Though he'd never written anything for publication before, his essay, Brother John, which was an essay about an actual Christmas Eve encounter at Mepkin Abbey, won the $100,000 grand prize. Tarak's latest book, Brother John, A Monk, A Pilgrim, and the Purpose of Life, combines his Templeton Prize-winning essay with the illustrations of the award-winning artist Glenn Harrington to offer an inspirational message of meaning and purpose to a world that for so many seems to lack meaning and purpose. Now a retired entrepreneur and corporate executive, Tarak in 2013 also published the book Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, One CEO's Quest for Meaning and Purpose. Here's August reflecting on the skydiving accident that triggered an emotional crisis and led him to the Trappist Monks, where he sometimes lives for months at a time. So these college students in 1996, actually these students from Duke University down here where I live, uh, coaxed me into going skydiving with them, and I jumped out of an airplane and smashed my right ankle to, ankle to smithereens. I had two compound fractures in my right ankle. And I was rushed to the hospital, and, I, and while I was in the hospital, I started having panic attacks, these terrible panic attacks. And um, I couldn't understand where they were coming from, but they were accompanied by terrible, terrible depression, just almost despair. And I finally figured, I finally hit, it hit me like an epiphany. This, I'm confronting my own mortality for the first time. And I'm terrified to die. And yes, this is only a broken ankle this time, but it's a harbinger of things to come. <laughs> uh, one of these days, the doctor's not going to say, you're going home this weekend, Mr. Turek. He's going to come in and say, you know, you're heading for the mortuary this weekend. Then what are you going to do? And this just exacerbated the panic. Because I just realized that despite what I thought I'd been doing, and that I was unprepared. So when I got out of the hospital, the panic went away, but the depression lingered. And it began what I call and talk again in my book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, about my, what I call my two-year dark night of the soul.
We're talking business now with August Turek. He's a Templeton Prize-winning author, speaker, consultant, and leadership contributor for Forbes.com and the BBC. He's also a successful entrepreneur and corporate executive who attributes much of his success to living and working alongside the Trappist monks of Mepkin Abbey. August runs a not-for-profit called the Self-Knowledge Symposium Foundation, and he's written two books about his experiences with the monks. The first is Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, and his latest is Brother John, a monk, a pilgrim, and the purpose of life, which won the $100,000 Templeton Prize. In this episode of Talking Business Now, August talks with us about applying the monastic model to secular businesses and finding meaning and purpose through service and selflessness. Welcome, August. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. You have written two very powerful books based on what you learned living sometimes for months at a time with the monks, but your life wasn't always on this trajectory. Talk to us about life before the monks for you. Well, and well back, actually, back in college, uh, the University of Pittsburgh, I went to the University of Pittsburgh. I'm the oldest of eight children. Yes, we're Catholic. Mm. <laughs> so I had six younger brothers and a, and, a, and a little sister, and I ended up uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, and I got really interested in philosophy and spirituality and religion. So actually, I started out on my own kind of self-quest. Uh, in my book, uh, Business Secrets, is called One Man's CEO's Quest for Meaning and Authenticity. And I actually trace it all the way back to college. And I actually dropped out of college, became a carpet installer. I talk about this in my book and started wandering around the country looking for super wise people that could help me. And one of the men I uh, uh, bumped into, because I used to go to business, uh, book stores and ask people at the bookstores, who are the smartest people in this town that could teach me something about life? And I got a business card of a man named Louis R. Mobley, and I called him up and he invited me out to his home, and it turned out that Mobley had founded the IBM Executive School in 1956 and ran it until 1966. Wow. And churned out all the executives that turned um, IBM into the most admired country in the, uh, company in the world back then. And long story short, I ended up uh, living with him and with his family and him. And I lived in their guest house. And every morning he would tutor me. And in the afternoons, I was helping him build his consulting firm because he had, uh, he had retired early from IBM. So that mentoring period was incredibly important. And uh, so many of the values and things that he talked about later came to fruition when I started hanging with the monks. Then I ended up going up to New York City. Um, and I ended up catching on with a fledgling young company that became MTV, Music Television. So I was one of the founders of MTV. Then I was one of the founders of what's now the A&E Network. <clears throat> and I found my way eventually down here to North Carolina to join the burgeoning software business in 1985. Eventually, um, as I and I talk this story, I tell people the whole story, we started our uh, own company um, from scratch, uh, basically $2,500. There's four of us. We had $2,500 we threw into a hat. Uh, we just said we're never going to put another dime into this company. We're going to make it or break it. And uh, it was, we saw it as actually a spiritual exercise. And um, we never took any more money, and we never um, borrowed any money, and we never took on any investors. Out of, just out of internally generated funds, we bootstrapped two software companies. They were then sold in 2000 to a uh, we merged basically with an Israeli company. We took some cash out of that deal, and we got a bunch of stock. And then a few years after that, 
the company was flipped to uh, BMC for $150 million in cash. So wow. that $2,500 initial investment plus the wisdom of the Trappist monks because I took all the wisdom of the Trappist and applied it to my own business, and uh, which, I, again, I, I give people a blow-by-blow account. One of the things I like the most, Kelly, about my book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, is it's not a theoretical book. It's a book from the right down in the trenches. And I said, listen, you know, this is not about tree-hugging and liking <laughs> the monks and all this stuff. Here's exactly how I and my partners took a $2,500 investment, applied the Trappist principles. Uh, and so each chapter has a bit of a story out of my own career about how we use these Trappist business principles to build our own business. What an extraordinary journey that you have had. But in the midst of all of that, you had a game-changing accident, which led you to the monks. So talk about that yeah. a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, actually, during this whole period of time, I mean, I, people uh, I often try to, and it's an understandable mistake, but I have, most people who meet me think that I am this, a businessman who happens to you know spend weekends with the monks or something <laughs> like that, or or likes to read an occasional spiritual book on the side or something. No, I've never thought of myself that way. I've always thought of myself, and I believe me, I, I attribute my success to this, so I don't think this is like not an important point. And I make this point again and again in my book. I've always considered myself a spiritual person or a person who's interested in higher purposes in life who happened to have who happened to be in business, not a businessman who happened to be interested in spirituality or, or becoming the best human being you can possibly be. So... Um, all during the time that even when I, again, as I mentioned, I even saw my starting of a business as a spiritual adventure, uh, a way to find out whether I could stick to my guns and my principles under pressure. And the other thing I was always doing was coaching college students on, on issues of what is the meaning of life, what is the purpose of life. What. So these college students in 1996, actually, students from Duke University down here where I live, uh, coaxed me into going skydiving with them, and I jumped out of an airplane and smashed my right ankle to, ankle to smithereens. I had two compound fractures in my right ankle. And I was rushed to the hospital, and, I, and while I was in the hospital, I started having panic attacks, these terrible panic attacks. And um, I couldn't understand where they were coming from. They were accompanied by terrible, terrible depression, just almost despair. And I finally figured, I finally hit, hit me like an epiphany. This, I'm confronting my own mortality for the first time. And I'm terrified to die. Mm. And yes, this is only a broken ankle this time, but it's a harbinger of things to come. <laughs> uh, one of these days, the doctor's not going to say, you're going home this weekend, Mr. Turak. He's going to come in and say, you know, you're heading for the mortuary this weekend. And then what are you going to do? And this just exacerbated the panic. Because I just realized that despite what I thought I'd been doing, and uh, that I was unprepared. So when I got out of the uh, hospital, the panic went away, but the depression lingered. And it began what I call, and talk again in my book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, about my, what I call my two-year dark night of the soul. Yes. And um, right at that moment, you know, I always thought I was helping my college students, but the more I tell my stories, the more I realized they were the ones helping me. Anyway, one of my college students calls me up in the midst of this a couple of months later, and he says, uh, I'm taking your advice, Augie. And I said, what advice, Josh? And he said, you told us to do something meaningful in our summer vacation instead of just chasing girls and drinking beer. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't remember telling you that. What, what are you doing? And he said, he said I'm at a, at a Trappist monastery called Mepkin Abbey down here in South Carolina, and I'm a monastic guest. 
He said, I'm wearing a robe and I'm getting up at three in the morning with them and I'm working on their farm with them. I'm living. I'm, I'm a part-time temporary monk. And before I knew what I was doing, Kelly, I blurted out, I want to come. When can I come? And the next thing I know, I was down there that very weekend. Three days later, I was down at Nutkin Abbey. The, the experience blew me away. I came back the next weekend and the next weekend. And then I applied for a monastic guest status myself so I could go down and spend four weeks over Christmas. But as I point out, uh, you know, in my writings, I said, I was knocked down there as a, oh, I wonder what it'd be like to spend a weekend at the mountain. Or I, I need a rest. I need a little retreat. I think I'll go, no, I mm -hmm. was desperate. I yeah. was desperate. And, and uh, that's what sent me down there. And that became, on the, it was the Christmas of 1996 at Metkin Abbey when this amazing incident happened between Brother John and me on Christmas Eve that became the inspiration for uh, an essay that I wrote in 2004 called Brother John, which won the Templeton Prize. It is now available in a beautifully illustrated book uh, called Brother John, A Monk, A Pilgrim, and The Purpose of Life. Why did you decide to release it in a book? I know it had been in some anthologies previously, but why did you decide to do a standalone book? It's an excellent question. So first of all, let me tell your listeners what happened. In 2004, so again, my college students, my Duke students started needling me, said, you ought to enter this this essay contest. And um, I looked it up online. It was the Templeton Foundation's Power of Purpose Essay Contest. In 3,500 words or less, what is the purpose of life? And, um, and I looked at it and I said, oh my goodness, I've never written anything before. It's open to previously published material. It's open to uh, professional writers. And it's been going on for a year and a half and I only have 10 days. But they, they just, I, they, the needling worked and I decided to take a crack at it and I was getting nowhere, and then one of my other students said, why don't you just write up that story about Brother John you like telling people? And I said, oh, that's a great idea. So I wrote up the Brother John story as an essay, 3,500 words. I submitted it right at the deadline, and six months later they called me up and said, you've won the grand prize, $100,000. Um, uh, I'd gone up against 10,000 essays from 47 countries and won, and with my first ever attempt at writing. <laughs> And on what a topic, uh, you know, the purpose of life. <laughs> what is the purpose of life, right? So uh, then again, as you mentioned, it was it was written, in, it was it, it ended up in two anthologies. Then on a weekend I was sitting down, I sat down one weekend, and for, I, for, I don't even remember why, Kelly, why I did this, but I decided to write a white paper on why I thought trapezers are darn good in business. And I pounded out this thing, and I distributed it to some purse friends. That's what I thought I was doing with it. And somebody gave it to an editor at Forbes. He calls me up, and he said, I'd like to turn it into an article. And he said, I want to call it Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. And it went viral, and, uh, and then that led to an invitation to become a leadership contributor for Forbes. And then I get a telephone call from Columbia Business School saying they want to publish it as a book. And then I, the book comes out, and it's very successful, and then I get interviewed about it by the BBC, and they said afterwards, could you hold on? And the producer came on and said, would you like to be a contributor with us? <laughs> so all of these things just kind of fell, falling out from my relationship with the monks, and I talk about this a lot in my business secret books, that you know, happy accidents and how uh, the kind of life that the monks lead and taught me how to lead start leading to all these happy accidents. So meanwhile, to get back to your question, all over these years, as this, all this stuff is happening, I get a steady drip, drip, drip of letters from people saying they had stumbled on my essay, Brother John, 
and it helped them get through a crisis in their life, the death of a child or a painful divorce or something. And, uh, and then about two years ago, a man shows up at my door, uh, an executive a vice president of a, actually BB&T Bank, and he said, I, can't, I just drove six hours to thank you for writing Brother John. Um, now, he called ahead, so it wasn't a complete surprise, but he shows up at my door. We're sitting on my porch out there, and he tells me this terrible story of, of being madly in love with his wife, and his wife walked in and just said, I'm out of here. And he hit a, he went into a spiral, and he was contemplating suicide, and he found my essay, Brother John. And it, and it inspired him to go to the monastery. And he spent three months living with the monks, took sabbatical from his job to live with the monks for three months, read my other book, Brother uh, Business Secrets, and it turned his life completely back around again. And so when he was leaving, he asked Brother John, um, the hero of my story is still alive. He said, Brother John, you know, how do I get in touch with this dad, Turak? And he drove up here to thank me for writing that essay. And I said to him on the porch, I said, um, you know, I'm very, very fl flattered and gratified and humbled by this. I said, it's a wonderful story. I said, but, you know, but you're making me feel guilty. And I said, why? And I said, because you're not the first person who has done this. Few other people have. And I know I've got a candle, but it's under a bushel basket. I've got to get this, mm -hmm. the healing power of this essay. I've got to get it out to more people where it can do more good. So he left. And I called up Melissa, who runs my nonprofit. Everything I do goes into a nonprofit. I donate all of my royalties for my books and my lectures and everything to my nonprofit. And Melissa runs it for me. I said, Melissa, I said, we've got to do something. So I'd had this idea. How do you turn 3,500-word essay into a book? It's not long enough to be a typical book. But what if it was an illustrated book? And, um, and so the Lord, you know, it's a strange story. I only talked to one artist. I've never met the man to this day. Glenn Carrington is the artist who did all. He did 22 original oil paintings for that book. Never met him. I got a hold of him on the phone. He was wanted to do it. He was so excited. He had such great enthusiasm for the project. Somebody had recommended I can't remember who. And um, But now I'm faced with this massive decision. You know, He's the only artist. I don't know anything about art. This is a one-shot chance I have of getting the thing right. So I called my nephew, who works for Scholastic in New York City, and I said, can you find out anything about this guy, Glenn Harrington? And he calls me back two days later, and he says, oh, my God, Augie. He said, Glenn Harrington's a famous artist. He said he works for all the top publishers in New York. He said, we pay him 20 grand to do one cover for one book. Wow. <laughs> and, and he wants to do 22 oil paintings for your book? Right. I did the math very quickly. <laughs> he said, grab it, you know. So Glenn did the art. And he, was, he said to me, you know, what I loved about him, he said, Augie, he said, your story is so powerful. There's nothing I can, I, I'm not going to try to retell the story through art. That's not my job. He said, I just want to set the, the spiritual and transcendental mood of the, of the monastery, you know, as a context for your very powerful story. And so that um, we did, and then we re released it October uh, 21st. It came out, and it just flew off the shelf. It was a, it was my, my publisher said it's still his top selling book of his whole of his whole publishing, and um, and you know we had to it was kind of fun we had to rush all these shipments to Amazon and to to the distributors because the demand was you know was coming in so fast and furious we were shipping books out like crazy so it's been a it's a Cinderella story <laughs> <laughs> definitely that but you know I want to go back to 
the secrets. You keep using the word secrets when you refer to your uh, book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you learned while living with the monks, those monastic lessons that you can apply to a secular workplace. Can you share some of those with us? It's the the centerpiece of Brother John on an individual basis, and it's the centerpiece of business secrets on an organizational basis. It is in our own self-interest to forget our self-interest. The more successfully we forget our selfish motivations, the more successful we become. The human heart, you know, is understanding business, being successful in business is 80% business of people. Customers are people. Regulators are people. The press is people. The stock market is people. Do you understand people? What do people really want? People want selflessness, not selfishness. We all want to be selfless. Life is a process. We all start out selfish. Mine, mine, mine. And we move towards selflessness. We go to the movies. What do we want to see when we go to the movies? The hero's journey. We want to see, in the beginning, Bill, Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, Groundhog Day is a jerk. By the end, he's a selfless human being. This is repeated again and again. We spend billions of dollars to watch people become selfless. And Mr. Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning completely changed. And that's what's inspiring. Why? Because now he's selfless. He was selfish. Now he's selfless. This is what we all want. And the more self now, and it's not strange to business. Now, I was good enough at sales, Kelly, that I was at one point on selling magazines cover. Every great salesman knows that the more he forgets about himself, forgets about his selfish motivations, forgets about his commissions, his products, and his quota, and instead fanatically and selflessly focuses on serving his customers' needs, the quota takes care of itself. The sales take care of themselves. Every great leader should know that most people want to be leaders. Why? So they can become, get promoted faster. No. The purpose of a leader is to get other people promoted. My job as a leader is to get you promoted, Kelly, not me. And the better I forget about my own career and my own promotions and fanatically focus on getting you and other people promoted, ironically, the faster I get promoted. When corporations themselves forget about profits, and instead focus on serving customers. The profits take care of themselves. All the things that we think we want, that we, you know, uh, they're all the trailing indicators, the, 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 um, the byproducts of living your life for a higher meaning and a higher purpose than yourself. And my life is an absolute illustration of that. I never dreamed I would be a writer. I never dreamed that I'd get that Forbes deal. I never dreamed that the book would come out. I never dreamed that I'd win the Templeton Foundation. But I lived my. But I. But the monks taught me how to live for a higher purpose than myself. And all these things just kind of happened as a result. These are the happy accidents that I talk about consistently. And mm-hmm. then, in retrospect, I look back and I said, "My goodness, what was the happiest accident of them all? Jumping out of that airplane." It's just so appropriate that that's what it was, jumping out of an airplane, because one of my next questions is, short of going and spending time at a monastery and immersing ourselves in the monastic life to have the same experience you did, how do business people today get to that level? Because everything that you're talking about is inherently true. You see it when you really stop and look around 
the most successful people do what you just described. But when you read about so many of the corporations in America today, well, literally globally, and, and just some of the, the things we see coming out of business, some of the awful things in many cases, it, it's so cutthroat and so different than what you just described. So again, short of going and joining the monks for a period of time, how do we start changing that in business? Well, the number one thing you have to change is yourself. A lot of times when I'm giving talks, the questions are all, how do I get Joe to change? How do I get my boss to change? How do I get my customers to change, you know? <laughs> and I always gently try to point out, have you guys noticed the pattern in these questions? We're, I'm all right, Jack. It's the other guy that needs to change. So the first thing I always tell leaders, I said, listen, you're not going to build an authentic organization. And this is in the first chapter of my book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monk, actually in the introduction. I said, if you don't commit to becoming an authentic human being yourself, you're not going to build an authentic organization. Um, so the first stage is to become authentic yourself. And that means, and I, I illustrated in my book by talking about the hero's journey, and I said, you have to say that you're going to take the journey yourself. And, um, and, I, and I talk a lot about exactly what that journey entails and everything in my book. But I also come out with an idea called the, what I call the transformational organization. And I use a lot of different examples. You don't have to go to the monastery. And I talk about AA being a transformational organization, and the Marine Corps being a transformational organization, and some companies that I've worked with uh, uh, being a transformational, and how Microsoft at one point in time, I believe, was a transformational organization. And I said all transformational organizations, uh, have, you know, sometimes they're consciously transformational. More likely, they're unconsciously transformational. They don't realize what they're doing right, so that when they start doing it wrong, they can't figure out what went wrong. Um, so they accidentally become transformational for a while, usually early on in their path. But in order to be transformational consciously, the first thing you have to recognize is what do people really want in life? And I think I make a very strong case in my book that people want to be transformed. They want to be, uh, we, we want to be more selfless, actually, even though we think we want selfishness and self-indulgence. And if you don't believe me, then uh, rather than we don't have all the time in the world today to read my book, I think I make a good case for it. So then you build your organization around that. So the first thing that a transformational organization has is a high, overarching mission worthy of being selflessly served. And when you look at the monastery, the high, overarching mission is serve God, serve each other in community, and serve their fellow man. Very high, overarching mission. Um, and of course, the most, the second, the corollary to the first one is you've got to make it meaningful. In other words, do it, behave that way. Don't just preach it. The monks live it, live it. The second thing you need is you need a a process by which people can become more um, selfless. You know, be, and and that process is, and the monastery is formation. You know, you become a postulant, you become a, and it's a it's a it's a way. You know, some companies can talk about. Um, educational programs or job rotation or in other words being very very serious about what we call personal development and human you know re human resources human development in your organization and and having a clear path that people can buy into to become transformed and the third thing you need is to is to fanatically work on community or what in corporations would be called culture culture is everything you have to and this culture has got to match all three of these things have to be in, in sync. So the culture's got to match, match the mission, and the mission's got to match the, 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 the personal development. And all, 
And, and, and all of these three things, the mission, the personal development, and the culture have to be top priority. Not something you talk about once a year at the annual meeting. This is the thing that is, is absolutely top priority. I remember Louis Almobley telling me about IBM and why they were so successful back in those early days. He said when they had their big meet corporate meetings once a year with the CEO, would call in uh, all the guys that ran the divisions and stuff. And the, very, the whole first day, it was like three days of these things, and he would call in these corporate uh, heads of the divisions and stuff one by one in over a three-day period. And on the first day, each one of them would be asked, what are you doing with your people? What are you doing with mm -hmm. your people? What are your, what's your, who are your best people? How are you, how are you helping your people? Who, how are you growing people? That was a whole day for each one of them individually. They had to come in there with their plan for their people. And so, you know, very few organizations, it's not about the numbers. The numbers came the third day. They immediately put that focus on on the people. And much of what you're describing here is really the whole servant leadership approach to yeah. leadership. I mean, well, of course, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> I mean, what we're really talking about here is thousands of years old, right? Yes, definitely. But but it still hasn't sunk in, has yeah, it? No, no. As a matter of fact, I make this point in my book. I said that... Well, I said, I love the God, first two Godfather movies. I wasn't such a great fan of the third one. <clears throat> I said, but in the, um, in the third movie, there's uh, Michael Corleone, played by Al Pacino, goes to see this cardinal because he wants to confess that he killed his brother. And before that happens, he actually, the cardinal is talking about, about love and the importance of love and everything. And he reaches into a fountain and he pulls out a stone. And he says, see this stone? He says, this stone has... Is, uh, he breaks it in half, and he said, it's been in that fountain for hundreds of years, perhaps. He said, it's still dry as a bone inside. He said, that's the way our hearts are. We've been surrounded by great men and great philosophies and Christianity for thousands of years, and our hearts are still dry. But what I'm, what I'm constantly talking about in my book, I said, is, is that success in life, as well as... Um, in your business is a, is a result of a transformation, is a change of heart, not a change of head. See, to me, where, the, where I kind of draw the line between me and even servant leaderships is most people talk, they preach at people, but it's not enough to preach. You have to come up with the methodologies. In other words, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't just stand in front of you and say you shouldn't drink and here's the 12 reasons why. They know very well that if they stand in front of somebody and talk at them, that nothing happens, nothing changes. Lou Mobley right. found this out in 1956 in the IBM Executive School, that lecturing and telling people and having the right ideas and changing minds does nothing. If you want to change behavior, you have to go through a process of becoming. An acorn doesn't learn to be an oak. An acorn becomes an oak. A caterpillar doesn't learn to be a butterfly, and a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. You don't learn to be a great human being or a great leader. You become one. So let's take again real quickly the Alcoholics Anonymous. If you want to become a recovering alcoholic, you go through the 12-step program of AA. They'd waste no time at all preaching to you. They'd say, get, get in line and let's start the process. And it's kind of like that old thing. You push the first valve down and the music goes round and round and it comes out here. And True. So, yeah, that's a great analogy. And so it, it's, and it's a lot of times it's a, it's a lot like a caterpillar. Like, you know, a caterpillar has to liquefy. Forget all the thought it knew. Forget all of who it used to be. Forget of all of all it. 
and, and, and liquefy and in a sense kind of go well, take one step backwards and, take, and in order to take a huge step forward to becoming a butterfly. And so the, the monks understand this. The monks have a process called formation. You start as a, as a, usually you start as an observer and then you become a postulant, then you become a novice, then you become simply professed. What is the, what is the, do you learn how to become a Marine? No, you don't learn to be a Marine. You come in, day one is what they call a raw recruit. As a matter of fact, you know, during the, the training, they're not even allowed to use their name. They'll call themselves this recruit. This recruit's doesn't know anything, sir. This recruit just came from the dining hall, sir. This recruit. Mm-hmm. And, and over 12 weeks of, an, of intense experience, they become a Marine. And when they get spit out the other side, when they come out the other side, they're no longer a recruit. They're a Marine. They've become a Marine. And nobody becomes a Marine just by signing on or reading a book. You know, there's that old book. I never read it, actually, but I love the title. It said, you can't learn to ride a bicycle by reading a book. And, and Lou Mobley's turned his IBM executive school as a result of all this. He said, what I need to do, he says, I, he, he, first of all, I almost failed. and said, until I realized that I couldn't teach how people ought to become a leader and and, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, even back then, and he was laughing to me. He said, "You know," I, he said, "Back in 20, uh, 2500 BC, Socrates said, I can't teach excellence. I can be a midwife. I can be a coach. I can coach it. I can't teach it.'" And Mobley said, "You can't teach leadership. What I needed to do with it, because leadership, becoming a great leader, is a transformation of consciousness. He called it a revolution in consciousness." In order to bring about a revolution of consciousness requires a, not passing a test. It requires epiphanies, aha experiences, wow experiences. And in order to do that, he said, the whole 12-week IBM executive school became experiential. All games, simulations, adventures, you know, experiences, all the things he could think of, that he and his whole team could think of. And he said, he said, we had a 12-week program designed for one thing. And I said, what is that, Lou? He said, to blow their you-know-what minds. There's one other point that I want to get out there, and that is some of our listeners might be saying, I agree with you, but, you know, the monks, they don't have a lot of responsibilities. They're living this cloistered life up in a monastery, uh, praying. They don't have a bottom line to meet. They don't have all these other things that I have to deal with in businesses. But monks are, uh, the monasteries I have seen, they actually are running a business. And so they they themselves are good businessmen, That's my too. whole point. I was just talking to somebody else. I just had a phone call today from somebody from Rome. And I said, you know, what everybody's talking about conscious capitalism today. Everybody's talking about transforming. Right, it's a buzzword. And I said, you know, it it drives me crazy because even people, Cardinal Dolan wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal about it. And I I met Cardinal Dolan a few weeks ago. I was on his television show, actually. And I said, I've been dying to meet you for for three or four years since you wrote this article. I brought it with me. He said, yeah, I remember writing that. I said, I said, you know, you're absolutely right, but what you and the, you know, Pope Francis don't realize is that the model you're groping for is in the church. It's a thousand years old. It's called the Trappist tradition. I said again and again in my book, this is an ancient yet emergent model. It's ancient because the monks have been making gazillions of dollars with using this model for a thousand years. And right. yet it's emergent 
because we're just we're just learning about it. We're just thinking that we're inventing it with conscious capitalism. We're not inventing anything. It's a thousand years old. So the other thing, people say, well, the uh, the monks have um, volunteer labor, and they get you know, and they have. And I say to them, hey, why don't you have volunteer labor? Why aren't you doing something so important and so beautiful that people will flock to help you? I mean, there's plenty of people crowdsourcing things and stuff like that. There's all kinds of examples of people that if you're giving them something fascinating, they'll, you know. But the final, of course, my final uh, retort to um, them is that I love what I'm able to say is, wait a second, the monks, I took all of the monks' um, things and I put it in a secular business that started with $2,500 and ended up worth $150 million. And I damn well know what it's like to make a payroll. I know what it's like to go three years without a pay, getting a pay myself. Right. These principles don't just work for monks, they'll work for you. Because I know for a fact, you know why? Because I did it. Yeah, you're living proof, a living example. And, I, and every single one of the chapters in Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks illustrates how I took a Trappist principle, applied it to my own business. Successfully. You know, and I also uh, illustrate by taking other examples of what I call transformational organizations, I also bolster my points by saying, hey, these people are doing very, very similar things to the monks, and they're very, very successful. So this will work. And on final, my final point is really what I'm really interested in doing is hey, helping you people with their personal lives as well. This is all, this, all the same thing. Your business life is a subset of your personal life. The things that work, you know, if, if your personal life is not working, your business life is probably not going to be working. We've been talking business now today uh, about the monastic model, applying that to secular businesses. You're a living and breathing example of how that works. But if you had to leave our listeners with one thing that they should be talking about in 2019, what would you say that should be? I call it the leadership crisis in America today. The job of a leader is to create a, a vision to articulate a vision of higher meaning and higher purpose that becomes inspirational enough that gets people to commit to it, to sacrifice for it. Um, That's what leaders do, and that's what they always have done. And we're not doing that for people today. We don't have somebody like Jack Kennedy who could stand up in front of us today and say, ask not what the country can do for you, or to say, we go to the, we choose to go to the moon and do the other things, not because they're easy, because they're hard. When's the last time anybody had any kind of higher vision and purpose to life? And our, even our religious leaders, as we know, are, are, are failing us uh, in, in, in that regard. So I think the most important thing is that, is that the, but again, I'm a bottom-up person. Start with yourself. What is the higher meaning and purpose of your life? Because you and the final analysis are your most important follower. You're your most important leader, and you're your most important follower. And if you don't have a sense of higher meaning and purpose to your life, you are not going to be able to inspire that in other people. And therefore, you're going to fail as a leader. Great advice, and so much more in your books as well. Where can we get a copy of Business Secrets of the Trappist Months and Brother John? We have a bunch of different places. You can find them at my website, which is August like the month, Turek, T is in Tom, U-R-A-K. That's August Turek, one word, dot com. Um, you can also, by the way, find out 
if you Google Forbes.com, uh, you can find a lot of the stuff I've written about leadership, which has this selfless angle to it. Amazon is the best place to get it. There's a lot of bookstores that are carrying these books, uh, Business Secrets of the Trappist and Brother John as well. Okay. It has been wonderful to talk with you today and, and very happy to be able to help you get your message out. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's been a pure pleasure. And thank you for tuning in today. Please be sure to join us for the next episode of Talking Business Now. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.